Well, I want to thank you uh, for letting me come and speak to you today. Um, this church is probably one of my strongest supporters, and uh, I, I really, really appreciate uh, all you do for the ministry. And um, just to know, let you know that I've known Steve Mitchells for over 30 years. Uh, if it wasn't for Steve Mitchells, I wouldn't be standing here today. And uh, uh, he and I uh, go back way before I ever became a Christian. So I'm glad that he's doing better. He said he was going to try and make it, but uh, I kind of laughed at him. So anyway, today I want to focus on searching ourselves. Now, I just gave you a taste of what my congregation looks like. These men have grown up in dysfunctional homes. They've grown up in abuse. Um, I've been on that hill now for over 13 years, and I've worked with thousands of these men at this point. And uh, the success of our ministry has been uh, dramatic up on that hill in the sense of sharing the truth with these guys and getting their lives uh, in order. And the thing that you have to remember is that they are still human beings that they have souls, they can repent, and they can turn to God. And uh, this is something that uh, is very hard to deal with sometimes. But I want to make it very clear that they are not forced to go to these services or to the classes or anything. I know people like to think I've got a captive audience. Well, they're a nasty captive audience. And uh, thank goodness the ones who want to be there are the ones who show up. So they're the ones seeking God. So it does make it easier. But today my message is entitled The Road Less Traveled. My son came across this book called The Road Less Traveled by Scott Peck. He said in him trying to work through some of the struggles he's had in this life, he said, Dad, I think you need to read this book. Well, I read the book and uh, I thought, wow. This was written by a man who wasn't even a Christian yet, and it was written on his search for Christianity. And it was written back in 1976, which is the same time I was a student at Central Washington, majoring in psychology and also majoring in education and physical science, so I, I, I had a busy schedule. But as I read through this book, I thought, it's amazing that this guy is so close to Christianity that he's not a Christian. And I thought I would share some of these nuggets with you today. And uh, as we search ourselves and search the kind of people we're supposed to be as Christians, this is what I have to bring into that prison. Because what I don't want is these men leaving prison with the same attitude that they came to prison. And, uh, and, and it's a difficult thing because many of these men are suffering from mental illness. Uh, they're dysfunctional. Uh, they've been abused. Uh, they can barely read. Um, they have learning disabilities. I mean, this is what I deal with on a, on a daily basis. So to get the message of Jesus Christ to uh, very angry people is sometimes difficult. But as we look at our spiritual journey, and that's what I want to focus on on the road less traveled today, is the journey. What is your spiritual journey, and what does it look like? 
I mean, we come to Jesus for all sorts of different reasons. But the one thing that we need to analyze is the motives. Are they the right motives or the wrong motives? I mean, I have men in prison tell me they want to come to Jesus because they hope that he'll get them out of prison sooner. Or they come to Jesus because they want to know what Jesus can do for them. And they have many, many wrong motives. Do we come to Jesus with the truth? Are we looking at the heavenly versus the worldly? And in this United States today, we are being sold a bill of goods that is far, far from the truth. And we're being told that we have to live in it and accept it whether we like it or not. Jesus said to Peter one time, get behind me, Satan, because you're thinking of the things of this world and not of the heavenly things. And basically, you're corrupting what I'm trying to do. And here he was, one of his main disciples. What's the direction of our path or our road to God? Is it straight or is it crooked? I deal with many men that have one foot in hell and one foot in heaven, thinking that's okay. Apostle John says you're either a child of Satan or you're a child of God. There is no in-between. Where are you at in that process? And what's your destination? I mean, we all talk about a better place. We talk about heaven. But there's also a hell. And we need to be thinking of it. Jesus spoke about hell more than he spoke about heaven. Because it's not a very nice place to spend eternity And when we look at eternity, it's one life with no second chances. What are the decisions we're going to make in this life in order to sit here and spend eternity with the creator of this universe? Jan Hedding wrote a new book called Still Restless as a sequel to his Follow Me. And I took a quote from his book. And it's basically people build kingdoms that crumble says, the problem of restlessness can be summarized like this. Every person seeks security, significance, and purpose. Each of us craves a happy, meaningful life, so we construct a kingdom. Everybody builds a kingdom. Everybody. Think of a kingdom as a way of organizing life, a system to make sense of the world. It's a way of living we set up and run ourselves. In a personal kingdom, we take control, and we like it that way. We articulate a kingdom in these ways and more. When I earn enough money, I'll feel truly secure. If I marry the right person and we build a home together, I'll be happy. Because I'm smart and surround myself with brilliant people, I'm significant. My family's prominence in society makes me influential and respected. A great career and growing reputation mark me as somebody important. And winning at whatever I set out to accomplish proves I'm successful. Well, Jesus in Matthew chapter 7 kind of approached this mentality. And he gave a stern warning to the people listening to him at the Sermon on the Mount. He said, enter in through the narrow gate. 
For wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. The church has been permeated for thousands of years with false prophets. By their fruit you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit you will will recognize them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell you plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. God's looking for a relationship. Christ came here for a relationship with us, and that's huge. These nuggets I pulled out of Scott Peck's book, I want you to pay attention to them and understand that he did become a Christian, but he was on a journey seeking the truth, which just amazed me with the accuracy that he displayed. He focused on four things, discipline, love, growth in religion, and grace. And he said these are crucial to human relationships. He said life is difficult. This is a great truth, one of the greatest truths. It is a great truth because once we truly see this truth, we transcend it. Once we truly know that life is difficult, once we truly understand and accept it, then life is no longer difficult. Because once it is accepted, the fact that life is difficult no longer matters. If we go to Genesis and we look at our patriarchs of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and we sit there and we look at their lives, the Bible doesn't paint an easy life for any one of those men. I mean, they set a model that, that these problems are to be looked at and to overcome. The life is difficult. Discipline is the basic set of tools we require to solve life's problems. Without discipline, we can solve nothing. We're called disciples. We're supposed to be disciplined. We're supposed to put boundaries around our lives and and, and literally live a life that's pleasing to God. These men I deal with grew up in nothing but dysfunctionalism. 80% of all the men and the women in prison at Purdy grew up either without a father or with an abusive father. 80%. There should be a correlation there. That fathers are important, but what kind of a father are you going to be? Problems do not go away. They must be worked through or else they remain forever a barrier to the growth and development of the spirit. One of the main things I teach in my transition release class is conflict resolution. In other words, if you're in a relationship, you're going to have conflict. I don't care who you are. 
Now, I'd like to tell you that Rita's and my marriage is perfect, but we have conflict. But the beauty of it is, is we resolve it, and we resolve it quickly. We don't sit here and just let it grow and grow and grow and try to hide from it. It is said that neurotics make themselves miserable. Those with character disorders make everyone else miserable. I deal with a lot of character disorders. And they've made lives for their families and their friends and the people around them miserable. That's why they're in prison. And one of the things we need to understand is that 98% of Americans will never see the inside of a jail or a prison. Only 2% of people go to prison or jail. I try to get these guys to understand the reason you're not finding sympathy is because probably the worst thing most of these people have ever done is got a, got a, a speeding ticket. And then they cry. I says, the point is, is that you're dealing with people who don't understand why you are the way you are. Why are you so angry? What are you going to need to do to turn around that anger and become a human being and treat people with respect? Self-discipline is a self-enlarging process. The pain of giving up is the pain of death. But death of the old is birth of the new. What? do you have to do to get away from this stuff that has put you in prison? What do you have to do to get away from the drugs, the alcohol, the anger, the, the, the viciousness that you have? Because things aren't going to change just because you get out of prison. If you don't make these changes inside here, you're not going to make them out there. Love. Love is something that Scott... Peck knelt. And I have to laugh. I sit here and I go, you know, Christians, they, they have this false idea of love. I says, why would it take a non-believer to sit here and nail what it really is? I mean, I hear all sorts of crazy things about love. I mean, the Greeks had six words. The Hebrews had eight words that revolved around love. And they broke it down so that you could understand it. Scott Peck says this. He says, The unitary definition of love includes self-love with love for the other. Since I am human and you are human, to love humans means to love myself as well as you. Love is as love does. Love is an act of will, namely both an intention and an action. Will also implies choice. We do not have to love. We choose to love. I mean, when we sit here and we think about the word agape, we think about this is God's love, and God's love is basically the willingness to love the not-so-lovable. I mean, why does he love us so much? That word did not exist anywhere in the Greek language until the Septuagint sat here and had to create a new word to define God's love to meet the Hebrew word hesed. Just like when Tinsdale was writing his Bible, he couldn't find any word in the English language that came close to God's love, so he created the word loving kindness. Our love, our agapeo, is our attempt to love like God, but so often we fail miserably but it's a willingness to love the not-so-lovable. 
Falling in love is not an extension of one's limits or boundaries. It is a partial and temporary collapse of them. The extension of one's limits requires effort. Falling in love is effortless. Real love is a permanently self-enlarging experience. Falling in love is not. Falling in love has little to do with purposefully nurturing one's spiritual development. Sometimes we call that love puppy love. Many of us in this room have fallen in love to find it to turn into a disaster. If being loved is your goal, you will fail to achieve it. The only way to be assured of being loved is to be a person worthy of love. And you cannot be a person worthy of love when your primary goal in life is to passively be loved. Rita has said to me numerous times over our 34 years together is that no one has ever loved me like you love me. And I can say the same to her. But it's because we're actively engaged in trying to care about each one of our spiritual health. If it wasn't for this woman, if it wasn't for Jan Hedigan's teachings, I wouldn't be here today. If it had not been for Steve Mitchell's willingness to deal with a barbarian pagan, as I was back in those days in 1983, I wouldn't be here today. Because of being invited to a Christmas dessert, and let me tell you, the last thing I wanted to do was go into a Baptist church. But five years later, my wife was seeking God. And after she sought God and found God, she became the most amazing woman I had ever known which led to my repentance two years later in 1991. I've been a Christian for 25 years. It changed my life completely. And I owe it to these people who love me, who spoke truth into my life, which I try to do in the prison, which is not always that easy. Whether it be shallow or not, commitment is the foundation, the bedrock of any genuinely loving relationship. Deep commitment does not guarantee the success of the relationship, but does help more than any other factor to assure it. Commitment. Reed and I are committed to each other, and we've been through some really trying times in our life and our marriage. Why? Because we had kids. And believe me, They kind of do their own thing, don't they? The issue is is that we've been committed to each other and to make this marriage work. Reed and I both come from families. My father and mom were married for 66 years before my dad died. Rita's parents are now approaching 70 years. Her father's 94, her mother's 91. I mean, we've had a model of commitment. The men that I work with, uh uh-uh. They don't have a clue of what commitment is. They don't have a clue about responsibility. They don't have a clue about so much of life, and it just breaks my heart. Because I have to listen to stories like this daily. And they're not making it up. 
I have indicated that the energy for the work of self-discipline derives from love, which is a form of will. It follows, then, not only that self-discipline is usually love, translated into action, but also that any genuine lover behaves with self-discipline, and any genuinely loving relationship is a disciplined relationship. If I truly love another, I will obviously order my behavior in such a way as to contribute the utmost to his or her spiritual growth. When God said he loved us, it was a love that is steadfast and unfailing, a love that will always be there when we want to turn back to him. It is a covenant love that is full of conditions. It's a love that is the willingness to love the not-so-lovable. And, and we have been led down a path making God's love so shallow and so simplistic that it just disturbs me. And what's interesting is these guys inside the prison get it. They get this steadfast and unfailing love because they've never experienced it any time in their life. Because most of the people in their lives have either abandoned them or abused them. Growth in religion. Since everyone has some understanding, some worldview, no matter how limited or primitive or inaccurate, everyone has a religion. This fact, not widely recognized, is of the utmost importance. Everyone has a religion. Communism is a religion. Nazism is a religion. Fascism is a religion. Socialism is a religion. Evolution is a religion. It's a worldview. And your worldview is intense. The fact that the most important part of our culture is our particular family, the most basic culture in which we develop is the culture of our family, and our parents are its culture leaders. Parents are important. Moreover, the most significant aspect of that culture is not what our parents tell us about God and the nature of things, but rather what they do, how they behave toward each other, toward our siblings, and above all, towards us. I had great parents. My mother would have died for me. My father would have died for me. They were always there. And I looked to them knowing how much they truly loved me. And sometimes you don't realize that until they're gone. Then there's grace. One more point, sorry. There is no such thing as a hand, good hand-me-down religion. To be vital, to be the best of which we are capable, our religion must be a wholly personal one, forged entirely through the fire of our questioning and doubting in the crucible of our own experience of reality. Coming up on my journey of Christianity, it always amazed me at North Shore Baptists after they would do these baptisms with 10, 15 people, that there were always one or two that sat there and said, I'm in my 40s, and I've never had my own relationship with Christ. Because it was just my parents' religion until now. And I would scratch my head going, how on earth could you be in the church for 40 years and not have a relationship with Christ? 
blew me away. But I see it all the time. It's got to be personal. It's got to be your own experience. Now we move to grace. The religious, of course, ascribe the origins of grace to God, believing it to be literally God's love. Have through the ages had the same difficulty locating God. There are within theology two lengthy and opposing traditions in this regard. Pay attention. This gets confusing. One, the doctrine of eminence spilled with an E, which holds that grace emanates down from an external God to men. And the other, the doctrine of eminence spelled with an I, which holds that grace emanates out from the God within the center of man's being. I mean, that's our job as disciples, that's our job as Christians, that is what we are supposed to be doing, is emanating that love to other human beings. So they want to know the God that's emanating down to us. It will be immediately apparent that the will to grow is in essence the same phenomenon as love. Love is the will to extend oneself for spiritual growth. Genuinely, loving people are, by definition, growing people. Until I was willing to love others, I had no idea what Christianity was. When I could start literally caring about somebody else other than myself, and trust me, I work with not-so-lovable people, and I don't love all of them, but the point is is that I do share the gospel. And I have seen men literally turn around from being horrible people to all of a sudden loving people, actually helping people around them that they've never done any time in their lives. Amazing. The change and the growth that comes in those people is amazing. I had a situation like that just this weekend. I had a man call me. His girlfriend and him is were fighting and he was distraught and uh, he had just gotten out of prison about a month ago and I mean he was really hurting. And it was basically because she was telling him, you know, I don't need to report into you. And he goes, well, I, I call you and tell you if I'm going to be late from work, why shouldn't you do the same for me? And he says, is that wrong, John? And I says, no, it's not wrong. I said, if I'm going to be late from work or whatever I'm doing, I always call my wife and let her know, and she does the same for me. I said, that's what being a partner is, taking care of each other. And I'm sure that they'll be able to work out their differences because it sounded like she had done some soul-searching during the separation and him too. It will be immediately apparent that the will to grow is, in essence, the same phenomenon as love. And we have to grow with love. All of us are called by and to grace, but few of us choose to listen to the call. Without grace, you can't have forgiveness. Without grace, you can't have mercy. Without grace, mercy, and forgiveness, you can't have a relationship. I mean, Rita's had to forgive me many times. Thank goodness. So it is with grace and to all love. Everyone wants to be loved. But first, we must make ourselves lovable. 
we must prepare ourselves to be loved. We do this by becoming ourselves loving, disciplined human beings. If we seek to be loved, if we expect to be loved, this cannot be accomplished. We will be dependent and grasping, not genuinely loving. But when we nurture ourselves and others without a primary concern of finding reward, then we will have become lovable. And the reward of being loved, which we have sought, not sought, will find us. So it is with human love, and so it is with God's love. What can I do for you, God? How can I serve you and the kingdom, which is being in your will? Very, very important. Forgiveness, what is it? We'll meet Walter Barnes. All men should live so long as to become this kind of man. Toward the end of the Sunday service, the pastor asked, How many of you have forgiven your enemies? Eighty percent held up their hands. The pastor then repeated his question. All responded this time, except one man, Walter Barnes. Don't you like it when the pastor has to repeat things, you know, so he can get more hands up? Mr. Barnes, are you not willing to forgive your enemies? I don't have any, he replied gruffly. Mr. Barnes, that is very unusual. How old are you? Ninety-eight, he replied. The congregation stood up and applauded. Oh, Mr. Barnes, would you please come down in front and tell us how a person can live 98 years and not have any enemies in the world? The old man tottered down to the aisle, stopped in front of the pulpit, turned around, faced the congregation, and said simply, I outlived all them jerks. (laughs) Then he calmly returned back to his seat. I'm going to read a letter that was sent to me by a friend of mine, Stuart Hayes. He and I were on the wrestling team together in 1974 when we won the Nationals. And uh, it was a great, great experience to be part of a national championship team in wrestling. And uh, this man, life's not fair. I had no idea how this man grew up. But he was basically abused as a kid, ran away from home, lived in Long Beach, slept underneath the roller coaster because that's where the electricity was. We keep him warm during the winters from the time he was 12 years old till 14 until a police officer befriended him, did a background search on him and found a Christian uncle up here in Bremerton, paid for his plane ticket, sent him up to Bremerton, And Stu was able to have somewhat of a normal life from about the age of 14 on. But he wrote me this letter. We produced a DVD at Twin Rivers in a special offenders unit called Legacy, which you saw the interviews. I sent him this because he was struggling with an issue on forgiveness. And this is the letter he sent me. He said, John, it's hard for me to say this, but I started to cry while I was watching your documentary, Legacy. For all the right reasons, after the murder of my nephew, Daniel Joseph Murphy, more than 20 years ago, my heart was immediately hardened. The senseless loss of a productive young man's life through an act of uncontrolled rage by another man, John Fred Lira, who throughout his entire life found every excuse to fail, brought out in me a desire for justice in its most severe form. But even though justice was served and his killer was found guilty, 
Then sentenced to 29 years to life, my heart remained as hard as the day my nephew died. So to a great degree, I have been serving time as well. For the last two decades, my heart has been locked up. Until now, I have not looked into the eyes of a single inmate. This has allowed me to keep them all dehumanized and in that dark place where my heart has been telling me they all belong. Now I've seen legacy, and I believe my heart has been touched in a way that I never expected it. It's like hundreds of pounds of weight have been lifted off my shoulders and my soul, and my heart is crying out to me, Can you see them now? They are human. They are human beings. The vast potential your ministry is tapping into is more powerful than most can imagine. Reclaiming human potential that has been locked up and forgotten is what I am seeing in your works. John, now I've seen their eyes and I've heard their voices. These men are human, and I truly believe that through the work they are doing with you, once free to begin contributing to society, Many of them would rather die than to ever do wrong to anyone again. 98% of all men and women in prison will hit the streets again. Okay? 98%. The question is, is how do you want them to hit those streets? The recidivism rate nationally is 75%, meaning 75% eventually go back to prison again. It's been my mission, it has been my volunteer's mission to literally reduce that recidivism rate. And I will tell you, we are having success, and we are not seeing a lot of the people that, that come to our services and stuff go back. And, it, and, it, and it's, it's rewarding. And to be able to work with some of these men on the outside and see them succeed is rewarding. Grace leading to love. The elderly man in his 80s hurried to his doctor appointment at 8 o'clock a.m. He wanted to finish quickly because he must be somewhere by 9. The doctor asked what the next appointment was. He proudly said that at 9 a.m. every morning he is at the hospital to eat breakfast with his wife. The doctor asked in what condition his wife was in. The man said that his wife had Alzheimer's disease and for the last five years she's hasn't known who he is. The doctor was surprised and asked the man why he continues to go faithfully if she has no idea who he is. The old man replied, because I still know who she is. Loving someone takes work, even through sickness and health. It takes work. What is your spiritual journey? Gary Rohrmeyer put a guide together, and I'm just going to close with this. Put it into three categories. The searchers. And the searchers look like this. Not interested, resisting. <clears throat> I was that person in 1983. I did not want to go to church. <clears throat> I was a true barbarian. And uh, I had no desire to be there. And Steve Mitchell stepped up to the plate and invited me, which he <clears throat> said was one of the scariest moments of his life. <clears throat> Curiously seeking and questioning. My wife began to do that. And by 1989, she had become a Christian. There's the searching assert assertively. 
responding, and she was that person. And I sat there as a non-believer watching her get baptized, and I watched her transformation, which led to my repentance two years later, which was my faith commitment, which is the next step, which is embracing the belief. Then there are their followers, experiencing new life, adjusting. And I'm telling you, when you're a babe in Christ, it's a huge adjustment. And believe me, I had thousands of questions. And every time a pastor at North Shore saw me coming down the hall, you'd see him scurry under their office, hoping that I wouldn't stop. Growing in community, stabilizing, that was difficult. But I began to feel more and more as part of the church and then living missionally, reproducing. In 1995, Jan asked me to start teaching adult classes, which was huge for me. And I worked very, very hard to do that. And it's paid off, all that work, because of what I do in that prison. What road will you travel? The road less traveled? Scott Peck's conversion? Analyzing everything and wondering if it's true? Or the broad road that leads to destruction? Basically, heaven or hell. where God is creating the lake of fire that is made for Satan and his angels. That's the destruction you're looking at. Or the narrow road that leads to life. Now, you're all sitting here, and I know that you're seeking God, or you are loving God, or you have a great relationship with God. And again, I just don't want you to forget about these men in prison, or these women. If many of us would have had the lives they had growing up, many of us would be sitting in prison. I guarantee it. I know I'm one of them. So let me close in a word of prayer. Lord Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for having Steve invite me over here to share today and to uh, uh, just to be a part of this community. And Lord, I I thank you for the support this church gives. And I thank you for... uh, these people who are seeking you and loving you and wanting relationship with you. And Lord, I just pray for uh, this weekend to be blessed and that uh, uh, we remember 4th of July for its uh, declaration of independence and why we are here in a country that has so much freedom. Lord, again, I thank you for all you do. And I just pray this in Christ's name. Amen.